Father, thank you, Lord, that we're here with some rain. That's been something we've needed for a while. And I thank you, Father, that you're bringing it. I pray that that would be a, a pattern you'd continue for our sake here in this part of the country. Thank you, Lord, that despite that rain, we have a good crowd. We have folks who have made their time uh, available to hear your word. They've traveled. They've uh, braved the elements. And, uh, Father, it's uh, a reminder that uh, we don't live by bread alone. And uh, this is something worth time, worth making time for, making effort to hear. Uh, we don't always know why, not even in the moment as we hear it, Father, but we can trust that as we uh, concern ourselves with things that were provided for our spiritual benefit, that there will be that benefit in the timing that you provide. And we can trust that. And we can depend on that. So it's all the more important, Father, that we give ourselves over to it. We also ask, Father, that uh, what you've been teaching us through this book and what will come in the weeks to follow uh, would lead us somewhere, Father, somewhere that's going to benefit not only uh, ourselves in eternity, Father, but give us a chance to pass on that blessing to others. Uh, begin to prepare our hearts even now for what that work may be. Perhaps we won't know it for some time yet to come, but we have to trust the Lord that if we've been brought here, it's for a purpose, and as we study, it's for a purpose, and as we learn, it's for a purpose, and that purpose, Father, extends outside ourselves. So I ask, Lord, that you give us a heart to concern ourselves a little with what, what comes next so that we would be that much better a student now. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin into chapter 5, let's remember John wrote this gospel with purposes in mind. Because the earlier gospels existed, it's an attempt to focus on aspects of his ministry and amplify on those. And tonight there are two of his purposes squarely in view in what we'll find in chapter 5. The first of those is John exploring the deity of God residing in human form. That is the incarnation. Jesus lowered himself to become a man. He took the form of man. But in doing so, he became a servant of the father whom he is one with. So how does God serve himself? How can one part of God be a servant to another part of God? That's the question that comes up in chapter five. This unique relationship that resulted from Jesus's incarnation becomes a model for our own relationship to the father. The second point of John's gospel in chapter five is highlighting the way Jesus is constantly contending with religious authorities, because why would men who supposedly represent the father have concerns with the son of the father? Wouldn't we expect that any man who's appointed to teach Israel about God would be the very first to embrace the very God that they have supposedly studied in the scriptures? But in this chapter, Jesus and the Pharisees are going to go into conflict and they conflict over certain rules of life that the religious leaders impose. But Jesus, it would seem, takes delight in ignoring. And the question then arises, why are these conflicts happening? What does it say about Jesus and what does it say about these men? So the first part of chapter five tonight describes a miraculous healing, a moment when Jesus heals. But that's not really the focus of the chapter. It sets up the conflict that follows. And then that leads to the focus of John chapter five. So the second part of the chapter revolves around the leader's challenge to Jesus for what he does and what he says. Let's begin with chapter five, verses one through nine. It starts this way. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. A pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease 
with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Now, as we saw back in chapter two, John again describes a feast. He starts the chapter with a discussion of a feast in Jerusalem, one that required that the Jewish males of Israel go back to attend the feast in the city. Whenever a Jew starts to talk about a feast and doesn't mention it by name, they are generally speaking, they are referring to the feast of Passover, which is the most important feast on the calendar. Like today, we might say the holidays, even though there are holidays throughout the year. You just say that and people know automatically you're talking about Christmas and New Year's because it's prominent. This would be the second time so far in John's gospel that we see Jesus traveling down to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. That would set the events of this chapter to be about a year after the events of chapter four, which shows you how much John is skipping to get to the things of interest in his gospel. That also puts Jesus about halfway through his earthly ministry at this point. And going back to Jerusalem would also mean he's going to run into the Jewish religious leaders again, which is the whole central focus of this chapter. John sets up the conflict that's coming with a story of a man getting healed at a pool, as you see, a pool called Bethesda. It's located by the Sheep Gate, which if you go back to Nehemiah, you find out the Sheep Gate is located on the northern part of the city wall. The name of the pool, Bethesda, it probably means House of Mercy. A pool in current day Israel has been excavated at about this point, and they call it the St. Anne Pool today. Probably the same place. Interestingly, John says this pool has five porticos, and that's where these lame people hang out. There's really not much reason to mention that there's five. It's not necessarily significant, except the number five means grace in Scripture. Around the pool, as I said, you have these sick people. Why do they come to this pool for healing? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we're told that people gather around the water because they believe that the angel of the Lord stirs up these waters from time to time. And when the water starts to move, it's pandemonium. All of the lame and sick and withered and everyone just suddenly clamor over one another, climbing over one another, trying to be the first to get in the water. And the first one who gets into the water, apparently, is going to be healed. And so they lay there for hours and hours, day upon day, staring at the water, wondering if it's moved. Now, as you consider that explanation for a moment, doesn't it sound curious and maybe even a bit suspect? Only one person receives the benefit of the Lord's mercy, no matter how many are present around the pool. It's like God's dispensing his mercy on a lottery system. And it's as if he only has a limited supply of it to go around. It's very capricious. Why would he ever dispense his mercy and grace in such a capricious way? And inevitably, he's going to frustrate all the rest of them. That doesn't sound like the God we know. And then secondly, this process, it requires a measure of human effort. It requires a degree of human works. In order to benefit from the mercy, I mean, to be healed, you had to be the one who had enough strength to beat off all the other sick people and get in the water first. Only if you had enough physical capacity to make it into the water were you going to receive any of the, quote, mercy that was coming. The ones who were in the worst condition, the ones who needed it the most, arguably, would be the ones who would be least likely to get it. That scenario doesn't sound like God either, does it? That God only supplies his mercy to those who have enough strength to contribute something to the process? It's the old adage, God helps those who help themselves, which not only is that not in the Bible, that is unbiblical. That is the opposite of what the Bible says. God helps those who cannot help themselves and go to him for their help. 
The world's busy thinking they can help themselves, which is why they never find the mercy of God in Christ, right? So that doesn't fit. Finally, the account says the healing happens because, quote, the angel of the Lord stirs the waters. But the angel of the Lord, friends, is always the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. Yet for the past 30 years, Jesus has lived only in human form on the earth. So he could not have been at work as the angel of the Lord, now that he's incarnate, stirring waters from time to time, unless he physically went there and stirred it with his physical hand. That's the only way he could do it under these conditions, as he has now become incarnate. Nevertheless, we're told desperate people have continued watching the water over the last 30 years, which suggests they're reacting to something, but they're not reacting to the angel of the Lord, despite what they're told. The unavoidable conclusion to all of these details is this pool and the healing story that goes with it is not true. It's a false story. It's a myth. The Lord never stirred the water. The pool never produced any healing. The myth had taken hold and people had repeated it and the desperately ill had chosen to believe in it. They had assembled hoping that their superstition would prove to be true. And perhaps when the wind moved the water or an insect fell in the water or because some guy in the corner says, hey, it moved and everyone just gets up and runs. The whole thing has a life of its own, but there's no truth behind it. And perhaps once in a while, someone even claimed to have been healed, but. Who could really know? So the story of God healing through the pool is not true, though the idea of such a thing held power over these people. Friends, that still happens today. There's nothing unique about this, right? It's a unique pool in a unique place at a certain time. But con artists continue to work in the church and outside the church today, just as they did then, promising miracles of healing. And typically they have some kind of arbitrary task associated with this healing process. And interestingly, it's often surrounds money and giving. And all that nonsense, like any other religious superstition, just serves to prove that men are always seeking substitutes for a real and true abiding relationship with God. We have weeping statues of Mary. We have grilled cheese sandwiches that look like Jesus. We have paintings that blood comes out of all of this nonsense is crafted whether entirely fictitious or whether supported by demonic activity whichever way it's all intended to substitute superstition and myth for the truth of a relationship found through god's word in christ so that begs a big question now at this point in the story why did john include this explanation in the account if it wasn't a true story well the answer is john didn't include this in his account. A copyist, an enterprising copyist, added this detail. In fact, in my Bible translation, and I hope in yours as well, the phrase that you're reading in verses 3 and 4 is bracketed. If you see brackets in Scripture, what that tells you is the translators are warning you that this is not reliable, that it is not present in the earliest and most trustworthy manuscripts. It appeared later, and in fact, in this case, it appeared centuries after some of the earliest manuscripts. So the copyist was attempting to explain something that you read a few verses later in the account. You notice back in the text I read, there's a point at which the man in talking to Jesus is asked by Jesus if you want to be healed. And his response is, I can't get into the water fast enough. Now, if you had not had the earlier part of that explanation in the text, you wouldn't necessarily understand what was he talking about. The copyist picked up on that. And so the copyist thought he'd be helpful if you and I had a little commentary earlier in the text to explain it. But what the copyist didn't do very well is explain that it was a myth and that the man was thinking about it, yet it was not true what he was thinking. That part is sort of overlooked. and I think it's caused some people concern because they wonder about a God that heals under these kinds of circumstances. 
But remember, there are things in the Bible that are descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible can tell you about things without necessarily meaning that what you're hearing is true. There's a time in the Gospels where the Pharisees said, as I quoted last week, that no prophet ever comes out of the Galilee. They said that, yes, but that's not a true statement on their part. Jonah was from the Galilee. So there are people who come out of the Galilee who are prophets. They just lied when they said it, but it's recorded as a statement. Here's another example of something being recorded, though not true. Back to the story. Jesus asked the crippled man, do you want to be healed? The man responds, I haven't been able to get healed yet because I can't make it happen. Someone always beats me to it. And he's been waiting to do this for some period of time. At least he's been in the state for 38 years. Maybe he's been at the pool for most of that time. It's an epitome of hopelessness. His own crippled nature is a barrier, he thinks, to gaining the healing that he wants. It's a catch-22. And it's also an example of the deception of powerless religion. It leaves you hopeless. Because of its element of works, you'll never have assurance and you'll never have confidence. I'm sure his friends or the religious leaders of his day would simply have told him, well, you weren't worthy of God's mercy. If you were worthy, you'd have been able to get there in time. God would have made it happen for you. You can't pass the test, in other words. And now here he is with Jesus, who is prepared to extend God's mercy to this man. I want you to take note, this man never specifically asked for healing. Jesus asked if he wanted to be healed, but he didn't say yes. Now, he implies that he's looking for it, obviously, because he says, I've been trying. But his answer speaks from a personal perspective. I'm working at it. I haven't managed it yet. He never actually thinks to ask Jesus to heal him because there's no indication that Jesus can. There's nothing about Jesus's identity or his question that would ever made the man aware of who he was or why he should think Jesus could solve his problem. As far as this man's concerned, Jesus is just interviewing him. Nevertheless, at that, Jesus tells the man, get up. Now, this man is crippled, right? He's unable to walk. So Jesus's words indicate that the healing has happened. We don't hear of it any other way. We have to see it by the fact that he tells this man to get up. Not only, though, has this man been able to now walk again, but after 38 years of not being able to walk, you'd have to imagine the muscles of atrophy. There's no strength in his lower body. So God gives all of that back. He can stand now with strength. And then after doing that, Jesus says, pick up your pallet or mat, the thing he was lying on on the ground all that time. Pick it up, take it with you, walk away. And he does it. This account is such a strong contrast with the myth. You have a man who's been taught, on the one hand, superstition, a myth of human religion, and it emphasizes that he had to be worthy or capable of obtaining God's mercy in some measure of strength. And then year after year that he fell short. And with that came discouragement and hopelessness. You can imagine what must be in his mind after so long, and yet he's still there trying. That's always the recipe, by the way, when men invent their own ways to God. There's always these same elements. It's always lies that begin with the mystery of supernatural power, you know, a little sprinkling in of something magical. Like this case, the water is going to stir. There's something mystical in it so that we can see something beyond ourselves involved. But then at the core of it, it is still all about us and our strength. It always comes back to human achievement to please God. False religion lives on that concept. And when that system inevitably fails, as it will, then we're set up to blame ourselves for not doing enough to please God. The fall guy is always the individual themselves, which is where the guilt comes in, which is where the burden comes from, which is why we'll never feel free under a man-made system of religion that focuses on works, as they all do. But the living God does not work that way. Man's ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not man's ways. The living God does not dispense his grace according to human rules, much less by our works of earning anything. He brings grace, which is by definition without a catch. 
And when the Lord decides to bring healing, that outcome doesn't rest on human abilities. What's so ironic in all this is the angel of the Lord did visit the pool that day in the sense here of Jesus incarnate, even though he had the power to part the waters. He didn't even touch them. He couldn't care less about the waters. Certainly wasn't going to feed the myth and he wasn't going to need parlor tricks to accomplish his healing. He just looked at the guy and by the word of God, he was healed. So by the word of God, a healing took place and it came to the least powerful member of this crowd. The one who after 38 years had never been in first place because he was so weak. And it came to a man who didn't even ask for it. In fact, Jesus didn't even wait for the man to respond to the question, not in the full sense. That's the difference, friends, between dead, powerless religion that's focused on man-centered works of achievement versus the grace of God, which comes by a matter of God's movement in the life of those who are unable to do anything for themselves and for the most part are oblivious that it's coming. Men look to their works to please God, and yet God is pleased when we hear and believe in his word. Now, this scene, just the warm-up act for the conflict that's now going to follow in chapter 5. Notice at the end of verse 9, John mentions that this healing happens on the Sabbath day, and that's the key detail that sets up the rest of the chapter. It leads to the first of what are several disputes between the Lord and Pharisees over the rules that surround the Sabbath day observance. Now, this is something you have to understand to get to the point of why there's such conflict. Under the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sabbath day observance in Israel had become a religion all its own, separate even from Judaism altogether. The rabbis had even come to the point of calling the Sabbath day the bride of Israel or Jehovah's queen. They had personified it at that level. Under rabbinical tyranny, the Sabbath had become a religion that laid burden after burden after burden on the people. It was the most important day of the week for religious observance in their mind, and therefore it was the high day of religious persecution in Israel. So almost anything you could imagine that you might do on a Sabbath day could potentially be deemed an offense against the law of the Sabbath if one of these rulers decided that that was now something that extended into works, into a work. So by the time of Jesus' first coming, just to show you how far this had gone, the rabbinical system had established something like 1,500 additional rules on how to live within the boundaries or within the requirements of observing the Sabbath. And today, many of those things continue on. And those who in the Jewish tradition who are observant, who try to follow the law at some level, You've probably heard of these things, particularly in communities where there's a lot of Jewish people who are retired, for example, like South Florida. Many of the condos that are positioned for that community, that are targeted for that community, the elevators on the Sabbath stop at every floor automatically because to require someone to push a button to choose the floor would require that the light on the button light up. And if the light lights up, that's starting a fire. And that's a violation of the Sabbath. So they just make it stop on every floor so you don't have to push any buttons. And, of course, they turn all the lights on in their home on the day before the Sabbath and they leave them on all day during the Sabbath and turn them off the next day. So, again, they're not kindling any fires. And that's just the tip of an iceberg of what has still maintained into today. And back in this day, it was beyond imagination. And the rules, by the way, of a failure to keep all of these things was death. So there's a lot on the line. You had to take it seriously if you if you lived in that culture. But, friends, these rules had no relationship to the law that God established and delivered to Israel. As the Lord delivered the Sabbath, he included in the law all the rules necessary for someone to observe the Sabbath successfully. 
But men with false motives took that law and they turned it into an opportunity to gain political power and rule over the people. So the rules granted the Pharisees, those who made them and enforced them, power while it enslaved all of those who were under them. And naturally, then, it's a great source of concern for Pharisees when they encounter someone like Jesus who is acting contrary to their 1,500,000 million stupid rules and encouraging other people to do the same thing. That's where the conflict starts. Verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who he was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and John just calls them the Jews from now on. The Pharisees took this immediate exception to finding this guy walking around with his pallet. They said, it's not permissible for you to be walking around carrying a mat. Of course, God had not declared that to be impermissible. God never said you can't do that. It was not permissible according to their little rules. And they portrayed their rules as equal to God's law. And in fact, they taught that if you want to obey God's law, then you have to keep our rules. That's the means to that end. The man says, "Okay, I was just doing what I was told to do by the guy that healed me. The man's saying a lot more here than just explaining how he came to this act. You know, when you tell someone that someone's healed your physical body, what you're implying that that person has greater authority than the ones he's looking at and talking to now. The one who can heal a body merely by the words coming out of his mouth is demonstrating authority as creator. Think of it. How was all brought into being by the word of God? It is then by logic, the only the word of the creator who could then change that thing that has been made, not in, in a supernatural way. In other words, if the creator then therefore tells you to get up and walk with your palate, you do it no matter how many men you might offend. That's the implication of what he's saying to these guys. It's interesting that Jesus did tell him to pick up his pallet now that you think about it. He didn't have to say that. He could have just say get up and walk. Conceivably, just telling him to get up and walk would have avoided this whole conflict. But because Jesus said to the guy, get up, walk with your pallet, it seems as though Jesus was inviting the confrontation in the first place. This was all designed to produce the confrontation because he wanted it. But interestingly, he slips away before it starts because he has a more important thing to attend to first. That is Jesus. Going back to the Pharisees for a minute. It's also revealing that when they hear the explanation from this guy, they don't seize upon the fact that he's just been healed. There's no, whoa, wait, wait a minute. You've just been healed? Forget the Sabbath thing for a minute. How did that happen? No, they cruise right past that. They're not only interested in the fact that someone violated their little rules. That's very insightful. It shows you that their focus is on their own interests and maintaining their own political power and not truly on any working of God around them in their midst. Men and women, for that matter, who are serving God will always take a healthy interest in the work of God around them. And these men show no interest in that. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's performing miracles to establish his authority and to prove his claims and to invite these confrontations so that his identity can be revealed under these circumstances. But notice again, the man that he healed never asked for the healing and still doesn't even know who he is, as we just heard which would tell us that this man did not have to show faith in Christ as the Messiah in order to receive the healing. There's no evidence he even knows who Jesus is right now. 
yet God healed him anyway. This man's been healed to create this opportunity for a conflict so that Jesus can have a conversation in a public way about who he is. Now, having said that, I'm not suggesting this man didn't become a believer. It's just that it didn't happen at the moment he picked up his pallet. It happens in the temple. When Jesus finds the man in the temple, and he's probably there because he's thanking God for the healing, which would be a thing that a man with a godly heart would be doing. He tells the man, now that you have become well, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, that language to us may not sound very revealing, but you need to recognize this is the moment of the man's salvation. Jesus says to him, now that you have become well. Now, clearly, that would suggest the physical healing that's just taken place. Right. That would be our logical assumption. But in this case, Jesus follows that by saying, do not sin anymore. There are other times in the Gospels where Jesus uses that statement. There's a few chapters from now in John's Gospel where Jesus encounters a woman who's caught in adultery. You know that scene? And he writes on the ground. We're going to get to that. After he saves her from the men who are ready to stone her, he says to her in John 8, 10, and 11, he says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, now listen to the similarity. I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. From the Gospels, The phrase go and sin no more is an instruction that Jesus often adds after an experience in which someone receives spiritual healing or salvation. Therefore, in light of that pattern, you could say here that Jesus says to this man, you have been made well, meaning spiritually you've been made well, not just the physical which preceded it. But now in this moment, he is declaring salvation to the man. He must now live up to that salvation. You have been healed. We would use a different term. You've been saved. Now, sin no more, which is the command of every disciple. If you presume for a moment to be devil's advocate, that he is strictly speaking about the physical healing, then what Jesus said following that makes no sense. Now I have healed you physically. Stop sinning so that nothing more would happen to you physically. It brings us to a conclusion that is unbiblical. Stop your sinning so that you can heal your physical body. What we're saying instead is you have been healed. Now live up to that salvation. That's the call of the disciple to live according to the grace you've received. Then as a result of his words to the man, we're told in verse 15, look, the man goes out proclaiming Jesus. That's exactly what the Samaritan woman did. He's become a disciple. Now, in this case, he tells the Pharisees who healed him, which is fine. Jesus wanted that. But that sets up the scene for what happens between Jesus and the Pharisees. Disputes about the Sabbath are at the center of all four of the Gospels. There's seven moments in which you see Jesus and the Pharisees contend over these silly rules surrounding the Sabbath. John records three of the seven, and his three are three that aren't recorded in the other three Gospels. Again, that makes sense. He had the other three Gospels. He knew what had been written. And there were four of these encounters. John adds three more. And this is one of those three Sabbath encounters. In this case, it's the Pharisees deciding to come after Jesus because he's telling people they can walk around with mats on Saturday. That leads us to the first of these long discourses. John's gospel is probably best known for these. These long periods of Jesus just talking. And in the discourses, we learn so much more about him and his relationship to the Father and to his mission. And in this discourse, it opens with him explaining to the Pharisees how they have completely misunderstood the Sabbath And its purposes. So verses 17 and 18. But he answered them. My father is working until now. And I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. Jesus says to the men, 
that his father is working all the time, even till now. Why did he say that? Well, we know the father is said to have rested in the beginning of chapter two of Genesis from the work of creation. But don't let that get you to think that he has never worked another day in his life. That's only in reference to the work of creation. The father has always been at work, though, in a general sense. He has remained at work in the lives of his people. He has remained at work in the operation of the universe. In fact, the only way the universe holds together and works every day is because the Father is constantly at work to maintain it. The Bible says that even the natural laws of the universe that we observe and take for granted are the result of God at work making them so. The Bible says God holds all things together and works according to the design that he has made, according to the power of his word. So when Jesus raises this point, he's saying to the Pharisees, you can't accuse God of failing to rest on the Sabbath because God is not subject to the Sabbath. God doesn't rest, period. If you wanted God to take a day off, the universe falls apart on that day. So the work of the Lord is never ending. My father is always at work. And the Pharisees, though they didn't like what Jesus is doing, would agree with what Jesus just said, that there was a consensus within Israel that God is the one who is always at work and that the Sabbath does not apply to God, it only applies to men. That wouldn't have been an issue of argument. That also reminds us that the Sabbath rest was a requirement given by God to Israel so that Israel might benefit from it. The problem is when Jesus said that he, like his father, is also at work and in doing so compares himself to be equal with the father. That's when things go really bad in this conversation. In verse 18, John says the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus all the more because, and then John lists two reasons. First, because Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. Let's stop there for a minute. Is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? Well, first of all, is Jesus subject to the Sabbath? In the form of man, he is. As he became man incarnate, He becomes a man subject to the law in Israel because he's a Jewish man and he has an obligation to keep the law. In fact, he will fulfill it by keeping it perfectly, including the Sabbath. So Jesus cannot and is not breaking the Sabbath. He is bound to keep it. Instead, what he's doing is breaking the Pharisees' stupid extra rules. That's not the same thing as breaking the Sabbath, as we've already talked about. In this case, the pharisaical rule that Jesus has supposedly violated was a prohibition that they had in their law that said in their rules that said it was improper to carry anything from a public space to a private space or from a private space to a public space on a Sabbath. That was one of the many arbitrary rules. So when the cripple picked up his mat and moved it out of the portico and walked out into a public space, he had moved his mat from a private space to a public space. And you can't do that on a Sabbath. But those man-made rules were not in keeping with the spirit or the purpose of the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was given to Israel within Israel to ensure a day each week without the need to work for their existence. That's the essence of the Sabbath. Remember, in the desert, the people of Israel were provided an extra meal of manna on the day before Sabbath so they wouldn't have to work for their subsistence. In the sixth year of the harvest, remember, they got double the harvest they needed so they wouldn't have to work on the seventh year in the field. They wouldn't have to plant. The idea of the Sabbath was resting from a provision of self, resting from having to make a provision for yourself. It was not idleness. It was not cessation from all human activity. That was where the Pharisees had taken the concept into absurdity. It simply was don't work for your needs, for your subsistence. More importantly than that, the Sabbath was given to create a picture of Christ who fulfills the Sabbath. In the new covenant, Christ's work on the cross 
brought salvation to men such that we no longer have need to think of working for our salvation. So when you believe in Christ as Savior, you rest in his work done on your behalf, the work of his life as a sinless fulfillment of the law, and you rest in his work on the cross. So you rest in his work in life, you rest in his work in death. Those works done for you, you rest in. You don't repeat them, you don't have to supplement them. In that sense, Jesus is our Sabbath fulfillment. So having come to faith in Christ under the new covenant, you have fulfilled the law because all that it required of you, Christ did on your behalf. Having had the law done for you, you can't do it better than he did it for you. Now that it's been done for you, you don't need to try to go out and do parts of it yourself because you can't improve on 100%. So we don't have to keep a Sabbath day. We can if we want to, but we don't have to because it's been fulfilled in him. That's why we don't have a Sabbath requirement today. That picture is lost when the Sabbath gets buried under 1,500 arbitrary rules, which take away the joy of it and make it nothing but a burden and a worry. How can that be a picture of Christ? My burden is light, Jesus says. So they want to kill Jesus because he's disobeying their rules, though they say he's violating the Sabbath, when in reality he wasn't. Secondly, they want to kill him because he says he's equal to God. Now, that's an even bigger problem. Of course, all Jesus could say to that accusation was, guilty as charged. The Trinity is a basic doctrine of Christianity. This verse by itself is further proof that Jesus did, in fact, call himself God. And it refutes anyone who would say otherwise. False teachers and very commonly today, a good example would be Jehovah's Witnesses. They will claim that Jesus never declared himself to be God. That's one of their standard little pitches at your front door. Jesus never declared that he was God. He's only a prophet. He was never God. And in doing so, they deny the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. Here is one of the many places you can go in the New Testament to know the truth. Just take him straight to John. Show him the response of the Pharisees was Jesus was telling them he was equal with God. But that's what made them angry. So Jesus then begins to share some of the intimate details between himself and the father and how they work together. John five nineteen. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the son or for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he had given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He begins here saying, first, the son never acts apart from the father. They always act in unison. Jesus, in other words, would never seek to do anything except what is the father's will. He's explaining his actions to the Pharisees. And he is saying that what you see me doing is exactly what the father would do. Jesus is defining holiness and sinlessness within humanity. If you do everything and only what the Father's will is, then you are holy and righteous. Every single thing that Jesus did was perfectly in unison with the Father's will. So when Jesus told the man to pick up his mat, his instructions were perfectly consistent with the Father's desires for that man in that situation. In other words, what Jesus told the man to do was what the Father wanted done. By definition, it could not have been a violation of the Sabbath. That's his point. 
Equally true, then, the Pharisees must be sinning when they demand that the man do otherwise. By definition, by process of elimination. If what he told him to do was what God wanted, then when they said do something different, they're sinning. And in effect, Jesus was explaining why his instructions were actually keeping the Sabbath in that respect, while the Pharisees' instructions were not. The idea that Jesus submits to the will of the Father has led some to conclude again that Jesus was not truly God in the flesh, for they wonder, how can God submit to God? And so they conclude Jesus must have just been a man. He was a prophet, a good man, good teacher, whatever, sent by God, but not actually God. And in coming to this conclusion, they overlook the detail that Jesus emphasizes most clearly here. The fact that he followed the will of the father perfectly. As Jesus said to the rich young ruler at another point in the Gospels, no one is good but God alone. If you want to say Jesus was just a guy, okay, but then you can't explain how any man could follow the father's will perfectly at all times. The only way you can do that is if you're sinless, because by definition, that's what sinlessness is. And if you are sinless, then you are God, for there is only one who is good, only God, Jesus says. So Jesus must be God if he's going to live perfectly in harmony with the Father. So we're right back to where we started. You have to be God in order to do that. And then on top of that, Jesus had to watch, it says, and learn. He, he implies he had to perceive the Father at work and follow him. He had to detect where God was working so that he could do the right thing, that he had to learn and watch the Father in order to know what to do. And speaking for myself, that is probably the greatest mystery and the most awe-inspiring aspect of the Incarnation for me. This thought that though he was God, Jesus experienced the process of learning, of growing, of maturing as a human being. That he had to go through that process, but he was God. And as he grew, he was always aware of the relationship he had to the Father. We see that even back in Luke's Gospel when he's in the temple teaching at age 12. And of course, he says here, he was always seeking to follow the will of the Father and to do only what pleased the Father. But the mystery of this is how God could be confined to flesh and therefore have to learn and grow in that flesh and yet still be forever obedient and submitted to the Father throughout that process. Because we don't associate learning in that way, right? We have to learn how to be obedient. We have to learn how to conform to the instructions we're given because we don't start with a nature that wants to live that way. He was learning yet always obedient. Always perfectly in the Father's will. Then Jesus says the Son is always in the loop because the Father always reveals to him, out of love, everything that he's doing. So what that says is not only did the Son never act out of disobedience, but he never acted out of ignorance either. There was never a moment when he didn't do the right thing because he didn't know what the right thing was. He always knew and he always did it. And the things that the Father is willing to do out of love for the Son doesn't stop with the will of the Father resident in the Son's life. It goes beyond the life of the Son and into the work of the Son. He says the Father is prepared to show through his Son even greater works. What he's referring to is greater than the cripple being healed at the pool. Well, what was greater than that? Well, for one thing, you're going to see Jesus bringing people back to life. He raises people from the dead even before he himself goes to the cross. And then, of course, it culminates with his own resurrection. And his own glorification, these are things that clearly are greater works. And you could even argue that it continues today. You know, the fact that Jesus is still at work today through the Spirit, raising bodies back to life in the sense of the new birth of salvation, it's not as outwardly exciting to watch, perhaps, as some of the other ones I just mentioned, but it's no less miraculous. And it's happening continually. And in verse 27, Jesus even alludes to that mission, right? Or he, he calls it out, his mission to save the lost. 
What's interesting in that verse, uh, in verse 21, is the claim that the Father was raising people from the dead is not novel. That, again, would not have surprised the Pharisees. You can go to the Old Testament and find examples in which the Father raised, or God generally, raised people from the dead. Remember the widow's son in Elijah's day? So God has had a history of raising people from the dead when he cared to do it. The new thing here was when Jesus turned to them and said, and I'm going to do the same thing. Here again, he says, the son gives life to whomever he wishes. Now, you have to know the he there in context. The he is not Jesus. The he is the father. Jesus raises whoever the father wishes. Remember, he said he doesn't do anything of his own initiative. He only does what the father wants him to do. He's already stated that. So Jesus can only do what the father directs him to do. So if Jesus goes around raising people from the dead, then it's self-evident he's raising the people the father wants to see raised. Still, the point is the same. He's saying, I've got the power of God. I can raise people from the dead. Another statement claiming to be God. But there is one area in which the father has said, tell you what, son, you can have all this yourself. And that is in the area of judgment. It says the father has given the son the right to judge all creation. Peter declares the same thing in Acts. In Acts 10, 42 and 43, Peter says, and Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So Christ is appointed the one to judge all things. Now, consider this. The Pharisees who were seeking to kill Jesus, we are told, are standing before the man who is going to judge them. And he has said as much to their face right now. What a warning. Jesus is telling these guys, one day I will judge you. Yet in the meantime, I'm willing to suffer under fools like you for a purpose that you don't even understand. I can't imagine what judgment they eventually did face or will face, I guess I should say, for what they do. But Jesus will judge all. And then in verse 23, he says, the father is going to ensure that everyone will eventually honor me the same way that they honor the father. And then if you don't honor me, then you are simultaneously rejecting the father. That has to be the natural conclusion from everything that he stated up to this point. These men say they honor the father. That's how they portray themselves. But their hearts are so far from him, they don't even recognize his own son when he comes. And the proof of the fact that they don't honor the father is that they would reject the son that he sends. But in the end, he says, all men are going to honor me. Think about that for a minute. All men are going to honor Christ. How are all people going to honor Christ? Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that phrase, all who are in heaven, which would include not only the angels, but any who have died and gone to the throne room, which would mean those who are believers. Those who are on earth, those who might still be alive at the moment when this judgment occurs. And those who are under earth. This is another reminder that when we think of the place of holding of the dead, hell, it is a literal physical place and it is located under our feet. Every reference to it in scripture is always specifically to under the earth. The point in that, though, again, is that it doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter whether you believe now or not. Doesn't matter whether you die in faith or die in unbelief. One day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Here's the difference, though. If your tongue is confessing and your knee is bowing, when you're staring at the one who will judge you, it is no longer faith. It is self-evident. 
To confess Christ without faith is a meaningless confession for the sake of salvation. It is simply a self-evident confession. And its purpose is to glorify God nonetheless, but not to your benefit, not to your blessing in that case. You will be judged accordingly. But to confess him while you have no sight of him is faith. And faith receives the salvation that Christ offers. So here we find the exclusivity of Christ's position and of Christianity's claims. The phrase that you'll sometimes hear, that there are many roads or many ways to heaven, is popular because it's a way of saying it doesn't matter really what we believe about God. We can all have different views about God, but nonetheless, he will still accept this all anyway. Some will find God in Muhammad, some will find him in Buddha, some will find him in Jesus, and some will find God in completely unique ways they make up for themselves. But Jesus's words in this section of John 5 and in other places as well, completely refute that notion. Jesus says that God is only found through the Son that he sent, and he names himself to be that son. And he says that only that name will be confessed and that one day all men will say it one way or another and that any other belief is folly and will lead to disappointment. We cannot say Jesus is both a good person or even consider him to be one of those ways to heaven because his own words preclude that conclusion. He is either lying or crazy, or he is God, because they're the only options you have. And if he says he's equal to God, and if he says if you reject him, you are rejecting God, then if he was wrong, then there's no reason to give him any thought again, or to consider anything else that he said, because he's just said something you flatly don't agree with, and that is impossible to agree with. But if he's right, then you can't add any other name to the list of ways to get into heaven because of his own words again. He made himself mutually exclusive. So the only two rational places you can be with respect to Christ is he is God or he's nothing. If he's nothing, don't add him to a list of good teachers. And if he's God, there's no need for anyone else on the list. Now, at this point, you can imagine everything he said. And for the most part, the meaning of it has come through to the Pharisees. And they're probably all standing there with their mouths wide open. Some are just incredulous that he would dare to say such things. Some are just astonished. Some are disgusted. Maybe some are just taken with belief and don't know what to say. But in any case, he's got their attention. So now he begins to speak to them about their authority. Verses 25 through 30. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. And those who hear will live for just as the father has life in himself. Even so, he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me receives this eternal life and passes from death into life. We've seen that motif already in the new birth of Nicodemus. Then he repeats that in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. He's speaking of two things at once. In these statements, first, he's speaking to the very truth of the gospel 
that those individuals who would hear the truth of who Jesus is, spoken of him through the prophets or in the word of God or in repeated through evangelists, have the potential to pass from death to life, spiritually speaking, just as we saw with the new birth of Nicodemus. Secondly, he's speaking to the miracles that he was preparing to work in raising people from the grave in the day that he walked the earth. People like Lazarus, for example, that there would be these miraculous movements of people from dead to life. But of course, lastly, and most importantly, he's talking here about giving life to ultimately all men and women who must be resurrected one day, not only to those who believe, but to all. And he carries out that conversation in two parts. Understand what he's saying about his own power. He's saying the son's ability to give life is equal to the father's ability to give life, that the Godhead has a shared power, just as we see in Genesis. In fact, in Genesis chapter one, remember that one verse where it says, then God said, let us make man in our image, speaking in the plural. So even from the beginning, there's this shared responsibility for creation, shared ability to give life. And in that sense, once again, Jesus calls himself God once again. Comparing himself with the father, but he has also the power to execute judgment. So we will either hear his voice now for the outcome of obtaining eternal life, or if not, you will hear his voice on the judgment day to come when you are called out of the grave in that you will receive a new body by the command of Christ. The dead will be raised. And that means both those who are alive in Christ now by faith and those who did not accept him as such. Nonetheless, there will be a resurrection And there will be no chance for anyone to ignore his voice on that day. Like Jesus said to those who asked the crowd to be silenced when they called him Messiah. And Jesus said, if they do not cry out, the rocks would have to cry out. That there's an inevitable response by the creation to the command of the word of God, one way or another. Now, from here, the conversation moves into this comparison of, as I said, between two moments of resurrection. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus says that there is a resurrection for everyone In the future, first, those who hear his voice and it says did good, did good deeds are resurrected to life. Now, in your Bible, in my Bible, verse 29, you may see the word deeds there twice. Good deeds, evil deeds. But in the original Greek, the word deeds does not appear at all. John never wrote the word deeds. All right. That's an addition that's been added by the translators to try to explain a little better what he meant. But I think it actually does damage to the text. Jesus here was not saying that good deeds or evil deeds are the determining factor for whether you have eternal life or whether you have judgment. Friends, that would be a works-based gospel. Read the sentence again without the word deeds in it. Jesus says to do the good or to do the evil makes the difference. And you could say to do the good thing or to do the evil thing. And in this context, the good thing is to hear the voice of the Son of Man now and respond to it in a positive way now, that is to believe in the gospel. Remember the story of Mary uh, Mary and Martha, when Jesus says she has chosen the good part by wanting to hear the voice of God. That's the same concept here. She's done the good thing, done the right thing. And in this context, it would be like the cripple man. He was told to get up and walk, take your pallet. He obeyed. He did the good thing in response to the word of God. Later, when Jesus told him, go and sin no more, he believed and he left joyful and he shared the word of Jesus. These are the ones that he says will be resurrected to eternal life. We who have believed in the name of the Son of Man will receive new bodies. This is the truth every Christian should know. Our hope in Christ includes a knowledge that death isn't the end of our body. We get a new body. When we have that new body, it will become an eternal one that never dies again. It will never suffer pain in the way that we know today through sickness or other maladies. It will never grow old, never grow weak. It will be a permanent eternal body. And in that body, we will live 
in a kingdom of righteousness and glory with Christ forever. That's, that's what he means by eternal life. Eternal life simply means no thought of death again, for there is no death coming. Or, on the other hand, those who have evil, who do the evil thing, so to speak, which in this context would mean to ignore the voice of the Lord, to reject him, they will also be resurrected. That's another thing that I think it's important to emphasize. There's no one who escapes resurrection. There's no one who ceases to exist. The idea that we are somehow annihilated at death is, is a false thought. Everyone lives forever. The only question is where. So the unbeliever receives a new body so that they can experience judgment. They're literally called out of the grave by the voice of Christ into a new body on the day of their resurrection to stand before him in judgment. And the judgment they will face is one for their deeds. Their deeds being evil will result in the second death. It's called a second death because once again, they are put into a place of torment in which they will not experience blessing or more specifically any fellowship with the Lord. That eternal death is their payment for the wages of their sin. And that's in the lake of fire. You see these two moments juxtaposed in chapter 20 of Revelation in just a few verses in each case. This is the moment after the thousand year reign of Christ on earth uh, or I'm sorry, on either side of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. In verses four through six, you hear of what happens before the kingdom. Verse four, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life, resurrected and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, referring to the unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This first group, it says this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then in verses 11 through 14, you hear the second half of the story. What happens to the other group? Verse 11, this is after the thousand years. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Notice they're standing. That means they're in a body again. They're standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. So the books are the books of deeds. The book singular is the book of life. They're not in the book of life, so they have to be judged by the book of deeds. And their deeds are written. Their deeds are sinful. The wages of sin are death. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. The, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So all believers are part of the first resurrection. All unbelievers are part of the second. The first leads to the kingdom. The second leads to the lake of fire. There's only two choices. And the only difference when you get right down to it is when did you believe Jesus was Lord? Jesus then repeats in verse 30 that he does nothing, even in the judgment that he gives, he does nothing except the will of the Father. The judgment that Jesus renders is the judgment of the Father. Always according to the Father has the Son acted because they always act in unison. And now to end the chapter, Jesus explains that if he were making these statements with no support, then he would be lying. People come with outlandish claims all the time. They always lack the testimony of God to support their claims. But Jesus had testimony to support his claims. He says, I can do nothing by my own initiative. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, and the Father has sent me. So he says there are four ways, basically, that he is being, that his testimony is being corroborated, that you could believe what he says. First, he says, if I didn't have corroboration, you'd have every reason to ignore what I have to say. But I do have it. And his first is John the Baptist. John told the people of Jesus' coming so that when Jesus arrived, then you could see that John's testimony had been confirmed that Christ would be there. And Jesus reminds the Pharisees that they themselves sent after John to understand what John was doing. We saw that in chapter 1. When they inspected John, they found nothing wrong with John. They couldn't condemn him on anything. They couldn't discredit him. And then Jesus shows up just in keeping with what John said would happen, confirming John's testimony was true. But now, Jesus adds at this point, I didn't really need John to testify. I don't need the testimony of a man. Verse 34, he said, The testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. What he's saying is, Jesus mentions John's testimony, not because God needs men to testify to him, but he says, I add these things so that you would be saved. Jesus wanted the disciples, he wanted us, the readers, maybe he even wanted some of the Pharisees to remember the words of of John when he said, here comes the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. He wanted that to be known so that by that testimony, some might remember and believe in this moment that Jesus was who he said he was. He says John was this light that burned for a while, which would indicate he's dead now. But that's not his main proof. His greater support comes from his miraculous works, Jesus's works. There is no escaping a miraculous healing or a person being raised from the dead. And it's interesting, again, the Pharisees never cared to inspect the story about the healing of this man. They never looked at that. They skipped past it. Because if you accept that he does miracles, then you have no choice but to accept he has authority in what he says. So if you ignore his miracles, then you can get away with ignoring his authority or so they would think. Because only the creator can do such things. So his second testimony was works. He says in verse 37, and the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of God, the scriptures testified to Jesus being who he said he was. He said the father himself has testified, but though the father's voice has never been heard and his form has never been seen, nevertheless, he has testified about me through his word. In verse 38, he says, you don't have the word of God abiding in you. 
You don't have this testimony. You haven't believed it. You've searched the scriptures thinking that in the scriptures you will find eternal life. And the irony is what you were looking for the whole time was me and you didn't see me in the Bible. The entire word of God testifies to Christ. I like to say that if you open your Bible and just pick any page on the Bible and point to it, I'll show you Christ. He's on the page somewhere. He's either there because he's talked about prophetically. He's there because he's there in a picture. He's there because it's talking to his works or to his power or to some other aspect of eschatology. He's on the pages of every part of your Bible. And these men prided themselves on being experts of the word of God, but they didn't understand any of it when it came to its ultimate purpose, which was driving you to Christ. So they missed the main point. And Jesus says, that's why you don't look at me now with belief. That's why you reject the father when you reject me, because though you search the scriptures in this pious and scrupulous way, your eyes were closed the whole time. Spiritually, you possessed closed eyes. And without hesitation, he labels them as unbelievers who lack the love of God in them. That's a phrase John uses a lot. You may remember in his letters, those who don't know him are those who don't have the love of God in them. This is a phrase. Apparently, John heard this when Jesus said it and liked it. He said, I'm going to use that again. And used it a lot. These men instead sought for the praises of other men. Here's another nugget you can take with you on distinguishing false man-made religion. False man-made religion is always designed to seek the praises of other people. Through piety. Through the works that we do. Even down to the robes and the smells and the bells. It's all designed to evoke emotion and response through sight and sound, which is a fleshly appearance, right? God doesn't need the smells and sights. God wants to see us uh, see the heart change. And that that mindset is evident in the way these men sought the zealous approval of others for what they did without concern for what God wanted. They would receive a man, Jesus says, as having authority based merely on the name of the man. What he means is they would accept your teaching if you had the right pedigree, if you passed the human tests. Jesus comes along, has no pedigree, has nothing to offer them. It doesn't come from a seat of power. They reject him, which proves that their hearts were about pride and not love, and they did not know the Lord. To finish this chapter, remember how it began? You had a man healed merely by the word of God. The cripple started out like the Pharisee. Believing in myths, relying on man-made rules, looking for supernatural displays and signs and wonders, trying to save himself by his own power and unable to do any of it. But then Jesus enters by his word and grants a healing that only God can do. It came by the power of God's word, testifying to Christ as Messiah. It resulted in the man getting up. But the Pharisees encountering that same word, it made no impact. They judged him and said, the difference is how you respond to the word of God. And it's power to change your life. That's the message that John's trying to evoke through this teaching. And Jesus is trying to raise through his admonishment of the Pharisees. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and and finish our night. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that uh, you remind us that your word is the most powerful thing in the universe and the only thing that can save us. And forgive us, Father, when we fall back on other things and rely on other things, forgetting that it is only your word that we need, not just in our own life, but as we minister to others. I thank you, Lord, that we keep that in mind as we go about your work. Keep us safe in the weeks to come, Father, and let us continue in your study according to your will. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.